The following is a podcast with Victoria Felker. Victoria is currently pursuing her doctorate, conducting research on women's health and female hormone manipulation within sport and medicine. Victoria is also a practitioner, educator, and has helped top-level athletes in a number of different sports. In this podcast, we discuss how Victoria got started in the field and primarily focus on women's health, especially as it relates to bodybuilding and physique manipulation. I feel like female competitors and athletes are often harmed even more so than male athletes and competitors by the misinformation that is circulated in the bodybuilding and fitness industry. And I'm trying to have more educators on the female hormone slash female health side on the podcast to discuss the intricacies of female health. I've seen a lot of coaches in our industry advising females without having the proper prerequisite knowledge and doing a lot of damage to female physiology and psychology. So if you're a female competitor yourself or you're a male competitor who knows a female competitor, dates a female competitor, or you want to coach other people, I hope that you find this podcast and subsequent podcasts that I do with female health educators to be very resourceful. And I hope you can use this podcast as a reference point. As always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Please like, comment, subscribe, and consider leaving a review on your favorite listening platform. Thanks again. Hello, everyone. The guest I have on today is Victoria Felker. And I um, asked Victoria to come on because um, with this podcast and the content that I produce and coaching, I want to really um, contribute to uh, harm reduction and safer practices for uh, general population, but also specifically competitors. And uh, Victoria is someone who is a wealth of knowledge on female hormones. So uh, Victoria, thank you for coming on. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind, could you briefly introduce, introduce yourself to my audience uh, and how it is that you came to do what you do currently? A great question to start off with and one that I always like stutter over because I think my journey's been uh, complex, uh, lots of different elements in there, but I guess to kind of get at the beginning of it was I started weight training when I was in my teens, uh, so back in the early 2000s, and at the time, I mean, women didn't weight train. Um, that wasn't a common thing as it is today. Um and I was a competitive ballet dancer. I was running to try to really lose weight. Uh, I've always been very short and stocky, and that just wasn't kind of the the phenotype you would want for ballet. Um, so joined a gym, started training. Um, you know, really fell in love with weight training. It eventually ended up, you know, not dancing anymore, um, or actually running for that matter, and just focused on lifting weights because I was really good at it. Now, you know, beneath it all, as a 15, 16 year old, I was struggling with an eating disorder still. Um, I had been put on the oral contraceptive pill because I had uh, only two very heavy menstrual cycle. Um, my first one, my second one, and then I was actually put on the pill right away at 13. Um, and so the conditions for actually you know, building my body weren't exactly the best at the time. And I, um, you know, through personal, I mean, oh gosh, 
a time before the internet as we know it today. I was reading Muscle Mag and Flex Magazine and Oxygen and just trying to get as much information as I could about uh, training and bodybuilding because I, I truly loved it. Um, ended up doing personal training at 16, at night school, at a college, graduated early. Like it was, I was destined to go into kind of kinesiology, sport med, um, wanted to become a sport med doctor, focusing on female health. Um, and then when I was 18 years old, kind of my world, I guess, crashed down on me because all of a sudden I got very, very sick. Um, I ended up in the hospital. Uh, my It was between first and second semester of my first year of kinesiology. Um, undergraduate degree, I had pneumonia and laryngitis and bronchitis simultaneously. And I think when a lot of people hear this story, they go like, oh, her immune system, it must be like an immune. Well, yes, it was an immune system, uh, kind of meltdown, but it happened when my body first tried to ovulate for the first time. Um, and so kind of those years of being on the pill, the years of uh, overtraining, under eating, um, it all kind of came to this crashing halt for me. I gained about 30 pounds in all of three weeks, which for somebody who's five feet, I looked like Bim Bim the Michelin man. Um, nobody knew what to do with me. My cortisol went high, then it went low. So they thought I had a pituitary tumor. Um, they thought I had then, uh, you know, the opposite end of the scale with more of the low cortisol, um, like Addison's disease could not figure out what was wrong with me. I you know, gained weight. I got hairy. My voice changed. All these different things happened to me. And as somebody who's always been, um, curious, I just, wanted to know what was wrong with me. So, you know, going through all these medical different um, appointments, you know, you're just an athlete, it's just weight gain, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna go away and me going like, no, you guys don't understand. Like, I eat like a champ. I train hard, like this just doesn't make sense. Um, so really, really fighting with the medical system, you know, at the same time, trying to learn as much as I could about what was going on with me and really realizing that there wasn't a lot of information. Um, you know, I didn't fall underneath that kind of stereotype you see in a lot of the sports science and sport medicine literature, where it's like female athlete triad or anorexia. I mean, I was in remission at the time. Um, and so nobody had any answers for me. Um, I ended up uh, teaming up with the legendary John Meadows. Um, you know, I'm from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. He's from Columbus, Ohio. So the, you know, the ways at which our paths crossed was totally crazy. And I, you know, one in a million opportunity, but I'm so glad that I did because he was somebody who right away was like, Hey, you're training so hard. If he actually said this to me once, it was, I have an email I've actually printed off. It's on my, above my desk. But if I had to train as hard as you, I would have quit bodybuilding a long time ago. Um, because I just would train and, and I mean, we're talking, oh, nothing was budging with my body composition. Um, and so he got me to come down and see Dr. Eric Serrano. Uh, and Eric was, I mean, right away pinpointed what was going on, was able to get me on a path forward. And, you know, when asked, what are you going to do with your career? I was like, I'm going to go into sport med because this is what I want to do. Like, I want to change female athlete health and how we think about hormones. And he was like, you're never going to do that as a practitioner. You need to go into research. And I took his advice and, you know, here we are today, uh, all these years later, um, and 
this is what I do. I'm a female health researcher, specifically in female athlete health. Um, my work looks at the use of, and I'm going to use that big term, but steroids, uh, both endogenous and exogenous forms and how they interact within the female body, but also just the body in general. Um, and my lens is a little bit different because I come at it from a very interdisciplinary background. Um, I, I look literally at steroids from cellular to social, current, historical, and where are we going in the future? Um, and so with my background, what it's allowed me to do is I think bring a different perspective to a lot of the conversations um, that we have around women, hormones, reproductive health, but also men and doping and everything else. So it's hard to sum it up. I know that was probably a bit of a, of a saga, but really, I mean, that's what I said from the get-go get is my background is a bit complicated. Wow, that's a really, really cool story. Um, I think um, some of the the best practitioners and the people who tend to be a little bit more passionate about what they do is is someone who had potentially struggled with something related to their field, right? Uh, I mean, that's something that I I had um, issues with when I got into coaching was the quality of service and and mm -hmm. uh, especially things around performance enhancing drugs where I chose to kind of pursue that route. Uh, but that's a really, really cool story. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on, do you know um, what potentially triggered some of those issues when you were younger? I think I've heard you before mention that you um, had PCOS and hyperandrogenism, if I can say that correctly. Um, could you could you potentially just touch on that uh, before? Yeah, on? yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, well, I guess long story short, it is I was put on a hormonal contraceptive at age 13 after only two cycles. Um, you know, hindsight, now I know all things about this, but that should have never been done. It was very poor practice for that to actually have been done. Essentially, you know, you're castrated before your body can even get a running start. Um, at the same time, I had a horrendous eating disorder. I was consuming about 300 calories, literally from broccoli and breath mints and running about... 13 kilometers every day, um, and then dancing for another four to five hours. So, so how I able to continue to be like a 4.0 GPA, you know, really speaks to resilience of my body, but that, you know, it took its toll on me. Um, I did not actually develop my hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axes properly. Um, there was a lot of damage and assault done to my metabolic system right during this very critical growth period. And then you mix genetics into that as well. Um, and so when my body, you know, I was, went off the pill at 17, I, I was amenorrheic when it finally decided I had all the things in place to try to ovulate my immune system. Just, I mean, it went very clinical term. It went apeshit. Um, and you really just didn't know how to handle it. And so, um, yes, my, I guess the diagnoses that I was provided after a lot of just hoops to jump through was polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now I, in my own work, don't use that term, um, because it's a very, um, I mean, it doesn't actually mean a lot when you start asking questions about what is happening in that individual case. It's, it's a bit of a, of a panacea that gets um, applied to a whole bunch of different 
um, clinical diagnoses or just clinical phenomenon. Um, and as a result, you know, women have been getting, I think, both treated and not treated uh, because of it. And so the term that I use for my, my what, what was happening for me personally um, was called anovulatory androgen excess, meaning that I was getting a bleed, but I was not ovulating. Um, and that my androgen, specifically androstenedione levels, were very, very high. And the only way we knew that was because I fought and I'm from Canada originally, and the Canadian medical system is hard to fight. It's not a pay-per-fee service to get androstenedione ran because when they would run DHEA, DHEAS, testosterone, my levels weren't high. And so, you know, you got a bunch of literally an appointment with an internal medicine doctor, a women's reproductive health expert, uh, endocrinologist, and a metabolic medicine doc, four of them being like, we don't know what's wrong with you. And my mom, who was a nurse practitioner, was like, you guys haven't even ran all the her androgens yet um, because I had such overt signs of virilization. I mean, my literally my voice dropped. My hair was like I was I was Yeti. It was bad. Um, but I also got super strong. And so, you know, people were accusing me of being on anabolic steroids at 18, 19 years old which was honestly, I loved being that strong. But the flip side of it was like, my lipids were all skewed, screwed up. My, um, my John used to joke around that I was a walking insulin bomb. We could not get me to deplete. We could not get me into ketosis. My body had just adapted so well to the conditions I put it under at 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, literally to survive. And then you put that in that, um, that environment of also having some of those epigenetic and genetic underlying traits. So both of my older sisters also have hyperandrogenism, uh, PCOS, um, and we come from, I mean, a family of metabolic syndrome and uh, different types of vascular disorders and different types of gallbladder issues. So all of those undercurrents you see with um, AAE, which is anovulatory androgen excess. Yeah, um, it's uh, interesting that you say that because, like, when I was first introduced to PCOS and, and what it was, my my um, initial introduction was that it was something you see more commonly with obesity, right? And so I think that's partially why that that blanket term maybe doesn't work, um, mm -hmm. uh, because there's there's other causes, right? Symptoms. Oh, may I, I, absolutely. Um, you know, a great example of this is, is like the, so I'm the youngest of three girls, my oldest sister, who she's four years older than me. So she had, uh, a diagnosis of PCOS in the nineties at 16 years old, which is very rare to get it diagnosed that early. Um, you know, in her thirties now she has tonically high estrogen, estradiol specifically levels. So her endometrium is super thick and she also has the androgen excess as well. Uh, middle sister was able to conceive twice successfully, no issues until her second pregnancy. Um, at that same time, she was going through a lot of um, uh, workplace stress. She was a police officer, had PTSD. I mean, her DHA, her labs were in like nothing I'd ever seen before of, of adrenal output of, of androgens. Um, and that triggered that, that cascade for her. And then there's me who's 
got, you know, been very active, very healthy, um, you know, ever since getting into recovery from my eating disorder, but, um, I don't produce estrogen properly estrogens, all of them, estriol, estrone and estradiol. Um, and so three very different outcomes of, you know, when we think about family studies with the same endpoint though, of this high level of androstenedione. So it's, it's fascinating to me as a researcher, yeah. um, because I don't think there's enough conversation about just how complex it can be, just how many different, not only triggers there can be, I mean, it can get triggered from certain types of contraceptives, the same ones that get used to treat it, which is the, you know, where my research goes into, because I'm like, this just doesn't make sense. Um, it can be triggered from different types of epigenetic, um, you know, conditions, it can be triggered from different type of lifestyle. It can be triggered from different type of environmental um, agents, such as, you know, we're learning so much more about like um, different types of plastics and different types of chemicals that can actually alter how somebody metabolizes certain reproductive hormones. And so there's just so many different undercurrents to it. Um, and I think for, you know, for your listeners, the important thing is, is that cysts on your ovaries aren't necessarily pathological um you know as cyst on our, your ovary can actually be many different things a follicular cyst or like what they call the string of pearls um which is what gets associated with pcos doesn't actually mean a whole heck of a lot so you can't use an ultrasound to get a diagnosis of pcos um and that somebody who hasn't had regular ovulation will often have the string of pearls um, because they're eggs that they're literally bursts, little like sacks of, of fluid that haven't burst. Um, and so it's not necessarily anything pathological. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. And I can, that's probably a different conversation for a different day, but huge amounts of misdiagnoses um, because of just the history of the disease itself. Yeah. I mean, even from what you're explaining to me, it sounds very complex with a lot of inter-individual differences on what, I mean, even within your family, like there's, there's yeah. a different, you know, it's a different um, uh, pathology for everybody in different way it functions. Four cousins on my paternal side that also have it. Jeez. Yeah. So, and I yeah, imagine it's... to some, to varying degrees as well with different um, sex hormones Absolutely. and things like yeah. that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Just because, you know, the, there's nothing linear about the human body. Right. Um, it is the most chaotic, and beautiful vessel and every single one of us is so different just like who i am today is not who i'm going to be tomorrow or the next month um and, and you know if we kind of transition to the conversation but just about like women and women's health and the menstrual cycle there's such a misperception that it is linear that there's these specific ranges involved, that there's these specific archetypes that everybody's going to have, you know, this perfect 28 day menstrual cycle with a 14 day follicular phase, which is the first half, and then a 14 day luteal phase, which is the second half. And they're going to meet these same levels of estrogen, same levels of progesterone every cycle. And it's just going to be like that. It's like, well, no, that doesn't happen. You know, women will never have the same levels of hormones in two cycles. You're never going to get that because there's so much dynamic, I mean, just insanely complicated and interconnected processes going on. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I, I'm just thinking of like uh, environmental and genetic factors that would 
potentially influence that like sleep is like a big one i think of like i imagine oh huge huge yeah it was it was really interesting um i know you didn't get a chance to go to the the swiss symposium this year um but i i next year well yeah this i think ken's actually doing it in 2023 which he normally does it every other year but word on the street is that there might be one in the fall yeah um i'll be there but I, I showed this diagram. Essentially, it's taken me about 15 years to put this together. But one of the things that frustrated me about my own journey was that term HPO axes. It's all about the hypothalamus, the pituitary, the ovarian axes. And, it, it, you know, even learning it in school, like I learned it within my anatomy and physiology classes. I did advanced women's health. I did even classes for mid, uh, midwifery and, you know, advanced nurse practitioner classes to learn more about reproductive health in women and, and learning it, it was always this you've got these three different points you've got these inter you know kind of communication going between them there is this negative feedback loop case closed done and then when I started actually doing more consulting work and working with practitioners and doing more research going to my master's my PhD and being like wait a second like it's way more complicated than that. And when we dilute it into this very linear axis of hypothalamus, pituitary, ovarian, we literally fail to recognize all the other factors involved. Um, there are so many other systems that influence the HPO. Uh, I mean, if we, even if we just take it one step further, the, what, what is the HPO? Like who's communicating with it? our nervous system. And where is our nervous system getting input from? Our environment. So you, even when we just take it that one kind of baby step forward and, and zoom out a little bit, we can begin to see that, hey, when somebody may have something with their HPO function, we've got to look up. We've got to look to the nervous system. We have to look to the environment. We have to look to the environment, both internal and external to the body. Things like gallbladder function, things like blood glucose levels, things like uh, neurological upregulation, they all matter for our ovarian hormone production. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about is it's how can a woman's ovaries and the cells within them, which it's its own complicated thing, because there's different cells types that make different ratios of hormones and have different metabolism pathways and conversion and all this other stuff. But how do the ovaries make hormones, steroid hormones to be specific. And I don't call them reproductive hormones. I don't call them women's hormones. I don't call them sex hormones because in my opinion, that doesn't actually speak to what they do in our bodies. Um, again, that's another, I think, kind of misnomer or kind of issue of, of semantics is that they do so much more than that. Um, they are so vital to other processes and other systems in our body. And when we only talk about them either related to menstruation or uh, related to female sex characteristics or any of that other BS, we don't appreciate like, hey, actually we need them for our brains. We need them to be able to have proper cellular function and turnover. We need them to build our bones. We need them for our metabolisms and not just like, like you know, we, circulating in our body, we need them to bind at the right sites and have proper receptor function and have proper metabolism. So it's just, you know, the conversation is so much more complicated than not only the fitness industry creates it to be, but also 
a lot of medical education creates it to be. Um, and I'm all for promoting, you know, s- practitioners that can be more generalized at the same time. There's a really important role for specialties because they're the ones that can actually do these deep dives and get that depth of knowledge, not just that breadth of knowledge. Yeah. Um, you, you kind of hinted at it, but, um, to, to shift in this direction, um, what, what is the importance of normal menstrual function for females? And is it important in the first place? I would argue it is. Um, so in my professional opinion, um, there is a very important role that the female menstrual cycle has for creating our very important steroid hormones. Um, and that those steroid hormones, when they're not in place have down chain reactions. So just as an example here, uh, let's just say estradiol, which is one of the kind of main hormones that get talked about in relation to the menstrual cycle. We do create a lot of it from our ovarian serogenesis. Um, There are other sites in the body though, that it gets produced as well. But with estradiol, it's really important for uh, vascular health. It's really important for nitric oxide. So they, there is repercussions when we don't have uh, steroid hormones circulating in our bodies um, and, or not, at least not in the right levels or not doing this, the, the correct kind of action that they're supposed to. Um, and so the female menstrual cycle is in, again, my professional opinion, it is really important with that said, not everybody has the capacity to have a regular ovulatory menstrual cycle. Speaking from personal experience, um, I don't have that capacity. And as a result, I've had to lean on to really solid hormone therapies to support uh, and ensure that I am getting what my body wants and needs. Um, And so with the female menstrual cycle, again, some of the most important things that I think get forgotten is that it is responsible for making our, a, a bunch of different biochemicals beyond just testosterone and estradiol and progesterone. There's a lot more into it than just that. It's really important to uh, promote a bunch of different physiological systems in our bodies. Um, And if we're talking about just bodybuilding or weight training or physique or strength goals, estradiol and progesterone are so underrelated are underestimated in our industry um, because we think that just androgens are the ones that are the powerhouses. And the reality is, is it's a balance. It is this harmony that exists between these different levels that are what's going to make really well-rounded, awesome um, athletes that can have longevity and can, you know, pursue the highest level of human performance Um, for women a bleed is not a sign that all is well and good in their bodies. A a menstrual bleed is merely one piece of a very complex physiological process. um, And that ovulation is the really, really important thing. Um, Ovulation is where the, the physiological process that creates progesterone. And if we don't ovulate, we don't create progesterone. And just because we have a bleed, it's not a sign that we are making progesterone or sufficient amounts. Um, and so there's, there's a lot there. 
I can keep going if you want, but there's there. I mean, there's a lot we can unpack there. Yeah. No, there's like so many things coming off of my head, like what we can talk about as you're saying this. Um, where do I want to shift? Uh, well, I think, um, so, so from, from what I'm understanding from what you're saying, um, in the menstrual cycle, it's basically like the follicular phase, the luteal phase, um, ovulation there, they all trigger, uh, sex hormones to be produced. Is that kind of how that works? Or, yeah, or, or, or kind, kind uh, of. enlighten me, please. Kind of so i mean this goes back to the individual okay it's uh it's so you know it's such a beautiful thing that we're all individuals but yeah let's just say the predominant amount of estradiol progesterone estrone testosterone i mean we also are making androstenedione and dhea and there's there's other chemicals and other things going on in from the, the process of steroid genesis in our ovaries. It's called follicular genesis um, or ovarian steroidogenesis. So there's a lot that is getting produced in there. And that the how we make those chemicals is through an incredibly complicated uh, process with different type of feedback loops, different types of stimulus triggers and, and responses and binding and metabolism. So there's there's a lot going on there. But at the end of the day, that it's through these these processes that we are creating an outcome of estradiol predominantly um, and progesterone. Now, progesterone is the big one because estradiol, the reality is, is that people can actually get estradiol from their fat cells too. Adipose is a great endocrine secreting organ, um, not necessarily at the same amounts for everybody. And this is going to vary depending on where they are in their life course. If you're in perimenopause, menopause versus in your kind of reproductive prime or different types of genetic and epigenetic things um, that can kind of also influence them. But progesterone in the female body, we are making the predominant amount. Now, research has kind of guessed, guesstimated anywhere from like 97 to 99% of our progesterone production is going to happen from the process of ovulation. Um, and, and that's the you know, even though we might not be making the same amount every single time we ovulate, but we are making the most amount from that process. We make a very tiny little bit from our adrenal glands. Um, and that we know progesterone is absolutely vital to, I mean, health in, in a female body. Um, and I just, I can't stress that enough because it is so important. I mean, brain health, Alzheimer's, dementia, there, there's research that's going, starting to go into that, metabolic health, thyroid health, bone health, um, I mean, muscular skeletal health, like there, it's just such an important yet underrated chemical in our bodies. Um, yet it is so, so, so important. So menstruation, I think yeah, if there's one takeaway I can say is that the menstrual cycle, well, it is a incredibly complicated process there are some checks and balances we can look for. One of them is, is do you have a bleed? Yes or no. Are you ovulating? Yes or no. Why or why not? And kind of pursue it from there. Um, in the most simplistic way we can look at it you can break it down and make it more complicated from there. How often are you having a menstrual cycle uh, bleed? How often are you ovulating? What's your kind of distance from ovulation to the bleed. Um, so, you know, we can, we can build it up from there, but for its most simplistic thing is, are you ovulating? Yes or no. Are you having a regular bleed? 
yes or no? The answer hopefully will be yes. And if not, we need to know why. And if not, that would be a time to um, work with someone like yourself, run labs as well, I imagine. Um, are there- yeah, I mean, sure. But he, maybe I'm a dark horse on this, um, Dylan, sure. but I think people overestimate the power of labs. I think people look to them because they don't necessarily have enough understanding of basic physiology. Um, you know, here's a group. I'm, this was a light bulb moment for me in my twenties when I realized this. So I am a very visual learner and I'm sitting there in an exercise physiology class. And I'm going to go back to the HPO because literally life changing moment here, but sitting there and I'm looking at the overhead projector because they still use them back then. (laughs) Um, but the teacher had literally one, two and three written down in, in a, in a line going downwards and one, it was fill in the blank. So hypothalamus two, fill in the blank, pituitary three ovaries. And I'm looking at this and I'm going like, wait a second, two are in the brain one are in the ovaries or the reproductive um, complex or we, you know, in the uterus. So why are we focusing so much on the ovaries when there's these two other things that are in our brains and we don't talk enough about our brains? Um, and that was a really big light bulb moment for me because I realized like literally in that second that we've been focusing for a lot of women on the wrong thing we've been focusing on their their gynecological health when the brain health their mental health has a profoundly important role in it so if somebody comes to me and they've got an you know untreated disordered eating high amounts of childhood trauma that's been unresolved they're not getting any support for their mental health why would I get them to spend a few hundred dollars up to a thousand dollars on labs? That just doesn't make sense. What is that going to tell me? I think it's a really important question for coaches to ask, what is this going to tell me? If I have this data, do I number one, know how to read it properly? Number two, what good is it going to do? Is it going to tell me something that I already know? Because you know, when it comes to menstruation, menstrual cycle tracking is an incredibly powerful tool. Um, tracking for ovulation through basal temperature is incredibly important thing to do. And we can use that together with well-timed lab work. But if you're a coach and you're just being like, oh yeah, just go get your hormones checked. That's like throwing a dart in the dark. Good luck. Like, and it just, it, it, you can probably tell how passionate I am about this because I feel like there's this movement right now within our industry of like, get labs done, get labs done. And I'm not against that. I just think people are spending way too much money into things that we need to first understand why we're running them. What are we going to gain from running them? Is there a way that we can optimize when we run them? And is there a way that we, do we even need to run all these markers? Um, a great example is with like, if a woman is on hormonal contraceptives, why are, is a coach telling her to go and get her hormones checked? 
that just doesn't make sense because the contraceptive agents are a synthetic form of typically an estrogen and a progesterone. Progesterone is not the same as progesterone. Depending on the type of contraceptive, it's going to be castrating their their reproductive function. So why would you go and get LH and FSH tested? Why would you go and get like, it it just, it it doesn't make sense. And I've had so many women come to me in recent years being like, oh yeah, my coach says that I've got X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, no, you don't like not at all. Um, Or if you are somebody who has an irregular menstrual cycle, then there are ways that you can get labs done in a way that makes sense. Sometimes it's running only a few markers, but strategically, sometimes it's running secondary markers. Um, You know, if, if an individual, if we're like, there's suspicion around like hyperandrogenism, whether it's ovarian or from, let's say the use of anabolic androgenic steroids, then there's secondary markers we can look to, to also gain insight. And a pelvic ultrasound is such a vitally important tool for women to get done when there's a lot of kind of gray and, and questions that we don't know about, because that gets us eyes on the inside. Um, It can help us to understand whether or not, you know, they are making any type of, of ovarian estradiol. Uh, In some women that have high tonically high levels of ovarian estradiol don't bleed, but their endometrium is going to be incredibly thick. Some women that don't bleed have very low levels of endometrial um, tissue because they have very low levels of ovarian um, estradiol production. You wouldn't know that if you didn't get the test done because sometimes the test does not actually give us the right answers if we don't run it at the right time and under the right circumstances. So, you know, I just, I can't, I think I can't stress that enough, Dylan, because I'm just like, it's driving me nuts right now to see this. Right. You know, one set of labs is not a clinical tool. One set of labs is not something you can diagnose something on. And as coaches, you can't diagnose something in the first place. Um, I don't even do that. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Um, does, does that change at all? If the, um, person is on, um, uh, performance enhancing drugs, I'm curious, like, uh, is, I mean, does that change the importance of labs to some degree? Um, or is yeah. it, we're, we're kind of zooming out and looking at like, what are they taking and other things like that? Well, I mean, let's, you know, let's talk about, like I said, for contraceptives, should you get labs done if you're on contraceptives? Well, sure. If you want to see what other, you know, what that contraceptive is doing for the rest of your health, we know that right. certain contraceptives and certain people are going to modify and alter certain metabolic outcomes or might uh, alter cholesterol or, you know, just getting a yeah. general picture of your health. That's right. one thing, okay. but running them for reproductive markers that we have questions about. Okay. Um, now, when somebody's on uh, on PEDs, then again, the question also goes to, what is it going to tell us? If you're on them, well, what are we trying to gain from the labs? Are we just trying to see how unhealthy you are right now? I mean, if you're a female, and I feel very strongly about this, there are repercussions, whether you're on a hormonal contraceptive, because it's a steroid, or an anabolic androgen steroid for your ovarian steroid production. And so if you're running like certain markers while you're on cycle, 
you gotta understand like that changes how you're gonna read those labs. It's like running thyroid labs when you're taking T4 and T3. It changes dramatically. Right. You know, TSH suppression on T3, we know that they're related. If your yeah. TSH is suppressed because you're taking T3, does that mean that you have hyperthyroidism? No. It's a clinically induced outcome. And so yeah. you have to know the nuances there. It's the same thing if you're taking certain types of um, androgens or you're taking certain types of HRT or whatever it might be. And that's where you can look to some of these secondary markers. Um, but you can't just rely on like, oh, you know, my, oh my God, I can't stand this one. My total and free test is low when I'm on Anabar. <laughs> it's like, no shit. Um, you know, great tidbit. If your ex environment outside the ovaries are higher in steroid content, AKA, let's say androgens, the inside the ovaries will decrease their hormonal production. Just like when men are on androgens, right. their balls will shrink. Why? Because their testes go like, I don't need to make, you know, why am I spending energy on this? Right. It's a great, you know, evolutionary function that we've adapted to, but our ovaries are going to do the same thing. So when women are on these like prolonged cycles, I'm seeing that a lot right now um, where you know, power lifter, oh, I've been on Anavar for a year and now I'm off. And, and my coach says my testosterone is low. What do I do? And I'm like, you've got to recover. Yeah. Like we, here's Dylan. Like another thing is, is like, there's no timeline when it comes to the body. There's no set like, Hey, it's going to take you 12 weeks to recover. That's like saying you're going to be able to do this, a miraculous recomp in two people with two very different bodies, very different lives, very different starting places in 12 weeks and get the same outcome. Yeah. You, you can't like, so when we think about like the process of recovering from certain use or when to get lab work done, I typically tell somebody, if you want to know where your health status is on cycle, there are certain markers you can run. If you want to know like you're, you're off and now you want to run health markers, wait about 12 weeks. Why? It gives us time for the body to get back into the swing of its own hormonal production if it's going to. Um, for, for you know, again, generalized kind of ideology here, but by and large, what we know is that the last phase of follicular genesis or the steroid, like the, how we make steroid hormones from our ovaries takes about three months, 90 days. So we should not necessarily jump into labs the week after your show when you've now dropped everything and started you know, eating again after 12 weeks of not like it, that just is or, not good data collection or even worse, jump right back on a cycle. Like, Oh, I took my month off ready to go again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's like, it's so funny because I think people are getting this better consciousness about like uh, oral contraceptives and being like, Oh, well maybe this isn't the best thing for female athletes, but then there are certain individuals that then push high doses of gear and I'm like, wait a second, like <laughs> androgens aren't magic. You know, for some women, androgens can be devastating. 
even at lower dosaging, because we don't know about androgen receptors very much. We don't understand, you know, why my androgen receptors are the way that they are as a female, because if we know very little about men's androgen receptors, we know even little, like less about women's, uh, about how we metabolize, you know, people often think of, oh, you know, it's a very beautiful steroidogenesis process where we have cholesterol and then pregnenolone. And then from there, you know, this beautiful cascade into DHEA and oh, conversion into testosterone. And then we're going to aromatize into estradiol. Well, guess what, folks? Not everybody has that. Right. And that's different at different tissues around the body. There are certain individuals that do something called backdoor androgen synthesis. Um, you know, it's a, it's a more, there's starting to be slowly more understanding about what it is, but it's still a very novel area of, of inquiry to understand, okay, well, maybe not everybody makes hormones the same. And maybe we don't make them all the same, even in certain things like the ovaries or like the testes or like the adrenals. And if that's the case, then how you analyze labs is going to be different. And that's why we have to take that kind of broad perspective and go, okay, where did this person come from? Life course. Like when I work with people, I go back, I go back to the very beginning. What are their triggers? What are their symptoms? What are their characteristics? Um, where have they been for, for women? Where has their reproductive health been? Have they been somebody that hasn't had a menstrual cycle for a long time? And if that's the case, then I have to use that as a lens now to look at certain types of um, discovery techniques, whether it be labs or ultrasounds or, or you know, even just doing basic histories. Um, if they've been on a contraceptive agent, uh, okay, so another little tidbit here is that we know the first seven to 10 years after a woman starts her menstrual cycle is what we call a critical development period. Meaning that if you start that drug during that critical development period, you can potentially alter and shift how your body not only makes, creates, responds, and binds to, to steroids, but also other processes that are kind of interconnected to those like metabolism or thyroid health or brain health. Um, and so that seven to 10 years, you know, if I have somebody that has gone on a hormonal contraceptive during that period of time, or let's say some type of other event, like horrendous eating disorder, where they became amenorrheic, I need to then use that as a tool to say, Hey, they might not have as robust of a capacity to make and, and manage their reproductive hormones or their ovarian hormones. And as a result, the minute they start prep, it's probably likely they're going to lose their capacity to make those hormones. Or the minute they start a androgen, they're probably going to lose that capacity. Why? Because we haven't developed it. It's like right. fundamental movement skills. Uh, you know, if you don't learn how to catch a ball, when you're in those critical growth phases, research has shown it's really hard to learn how to catch a ball later on in life um, because of just some of the dexterity involved and the visual processing and, and everything else. And we know that's similar to our reproductive function and both men and women, I have to say. Uh, it's not, you know, I focus on women, but there's a lot of really poor information around men's um, reproductive health and just how they make hormones and certain critical growth phases and stuff like that, just because all the attention has been on women, um, which is a disservice, I think, to, to men's health as an, overall. But um, I lost my thought there. I uh, went off on another tangent for you. Oh, no, that's great. Um, 
one thing I, I wanted to mention, uh, first of all, thank you, because I remember being in high school and we had, uh, I think, Planned Parenthood or someone come to speak my like senior year. I remember asking, like I was the buff kid, so it was like stereotypical, like a meathead kind of guy asking this question. I was, they were talking about how oral contraceptives and contraceptives were completely safe and there's no side effects. And I was just like, I was already had some idea about this and I was like, I don't know if that's true. And then, and then I was like, well, this person is describing, I had some understanding of testosterone mm -hmm. and stuff. And I was like, this person is describing uh, a steroid hormone. And I was like, I raised my hand and I was like, are, is, 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 uh, are oral contraceptives and contraceptives, like, I guess not to generalize are, are oral contraceptives, um, steroids. Uh, and they, and they said like, no. And I think also because of the stigma, they said no mm -hmm. as well around steroids. And uh, I remember like some people laughed and stuff too. And I was just like mean mugging them. Cause I was like, okay, like I am allowed to ask these types of questions, but I remember just kind of like the downplay of like the seriousness of, of that. And now, now understanding like, you know, it, it causes the, uh, the shutdown of, of production of hormones mm -hmm. and things like that. I mean, it is yeah. something that can be problematic. You know, if you look at oral anabolic androgenic steroids, and other than, you know, there's some that aren't necessarily as like hepatoxic, but a lot of them are. Right. People go like, oh my God, they're so hepatoxic. You can't be on them for a very long time. Oral estrogen, specifically ethyl estradiol, yeah, is, yeah. is also hepatoxic in certain levels. Certain progesterones that are no longer on the market that were on the market even in the 80s and the, the 70s got taken off because of hepatoxicity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's implicate, like they are an oral steroid. And right. even if they are not taking it orally and it's not getting that same metabolism um, and, and breakdown, there are still implications from other routes of administration. Right. Uh, the, the patch, the pellet, the IUD, whatever, you know, whatever it is, you're still putting a steroid hormone into your body. And mm -hmm. I fought this for my doctoral dissertation. Like I fought this so freaking hard to my committee because they kept saying to me like, well, just call a spade a spade. And I'm like, I am, yeah. I'm not going to stand up here and say, I'm talking about hormonal contraceptives when I'm talking about two drug families called estrogens with an S on the end, because there's more than one, and progestrogens, which is, again, a different way of me pronouncing it. I'm not pronouncing it incorrectly. I'm pronouncing the name of the category that includes both progesterones, yeah. pharmaceutical, and progesterins, pharmaceutical. It's the umbrella term. Right. And that these two drug families often get used together, but they don't always, and they are from the steroid hormone umbrella. They sit there with the androgens and part of the androgen family is also anabolic androgenic steroids. It, you know, it's this, this idea of naming, you know, we started off our conversation earlier about it. It's, it, it has changed how we perceive risk. It has changed how we perceive um, legal consequences around them. Uh, what's permissible or not in certain settings like sport or even workplace. Um, it's changed even ideas around uh, risk management. And it's so sad to me because when I, you know, look at my work and saying to people like, hey, did you know that back in the 60s when oral contraceptives first came to market, they were only prescribed to women for three months max. And then it got changed to six months. 
and then it got changed to three years, and then it got changed to six years. Why? Greed. That's all it was. It was pharmaceutical greed. Right. No different than like in the 90s, oral contraceptives getting rebranded as acne drugs. It was greed. Their sales went down in the 80s and they're like, shit, we need to do something about this. And they literally rebranded them yeah. as acne agents. Um, it's just, it's, you know, it's stranger than, what's that saying? It's stranger than, than fiction, but it's both. If you look at the history of testosterone, if you look at the history of doping in sport, if you look at the history of HRT or oral contraceptives, it is absolutely maddening. Like it's just, it is so hard to fathom as a practitioner now going like, wait a second. Doctors today still are prescribing the oral contraceptive pill for treating amenorrhea. So they're giving a drug that's going to castrate a woman to try to treat the fact that she's castrated. Right. Because of misinformation, because they perceive that the estrogens and the progesterones in these drugs are the same as what we are supposed to make. Just like the bleed that you get on a contraceptive agent is the same as a bleed that you would get from an ovulatory menstrual cycle. It's like, it's just been so, it's shady. I mean, it's just freaking shady. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that even happened in, um, I don't know if you've ever seen Bigger, Stronger, Faster and like what they, what, how testosterone became like it, the, the social implications of that and like how that happened is just crazy to me. Yeah. And so, even what you're describing, it's, it's insane. And it goes even more funny story about bigger, stronger, faster. So it came, it was in the, um, what do you call it? Film festival circuit okay. when I was in my undergraduate and as my like me meathead was like, so about learning about doping in a, in a sport ethics class I was like this would be awesome and um and so we actually my my instructor got a copy of the film because it had been at the the vancouver film festival yeah yes and uh i had so many questions i literally went to the urban k barber library it's the the sport library at ebc it's got a little sports section there for like a good 18 hours my older sister like had to come and find me um because i just started digging because i was like why are these things that i'm seeing my friends at the gym take got so many implications and where's the story about women like i went deep i actually went and thanked uh to chris bell when i met him because i was like you are the one of the reasons why i'm in this work because yeah. you created such curiosity for me about steroids because right away i was going through my that was around the time i was going through my own journey and just not understanding why we aren't talking about contraceptives the same as androgens why are we talking about androgens in this very like monolithic way of like you know good versus bad um and like this is like honestly this is what my last six years of my life has been researching why do we think that androgens are what's associated with performance and not estrogens right. and progesterone? Right. Why do we have one that's been banned in sport and one that is actually researched and funded yet also is associated with high amounts of risk and high amounts of clots? Like I can't tell you in the research, like, cause I can't yet, 
but I will be able to soon. Um, how many case control report or case studies there are of female athletes dying of, of DVT or deep in thrombosis that also were on the contraceptive pill? Like why have sporting organizations just turned a blind eye to the use of hormonal contraceptives or estrogen and progesterones for non-contraceptive purposes, for sport specific purposes, for manipulating menstruation or perceived amounts of improving performance since the 1930s. They predate androgens. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. That's crazy. Oh, this is my, you know, I, I hope that I like my work because I've spent so long on it at this point in time, (laughs) but it is just to me, like, I'm so passionate about it because it's a story I think people need to hear. Right. We need to take the labels of sex away. We need to take the labels of um, moral or immoral or medical or therapeutic or enhancement. We need to just take those labels away and like, look at what are we talking about? How do these impact individuals and impact individuals differently? I like androgen use, not all women are going to have the same outcomes, whether it be positive or negative, because we're not all the same. Just like not all men are gonna have the same outcomes. You get some men that, uh, I mean, use just a little tiny bit of say, Primo uh, and gain 20 pounds of mass. And you get other guys that they have to take a lot more than Primo to get the same outcomes. Um, Even if they're the same age with the same training backgrounds um, because of this, you know, that beautiful complexity of the human body. Some men will experience side effects like hair loss or acne or uh, changes to their demeanor. Some men won't. Some women will have virilization. Some women may not. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to actually understand these drugs and what they do and how are they, uh, they, how do they influence so many different physiological systems in the body before you go about just, you know, willy nilly giving them to somebody because you can literally change the rest of that person's life because of your own ignorance. That's not okay to me. I, I wish more coaches would consider the long-term implications that they have on people um, when they're... But it's for that $20 trophy. Yeah, yeah. And potentially more clout for them and their business. Yeah. And, you know, and if we talk about PEDs, I think it's important you know, for women. We have to talk about the other stuff too. I mean, hyperinflating levels of thyroid hormone has got to have implications. Um, utilizing stimulants is good to have impl- uh, right, implications. Right. It, it's not usually just one drug. I mean, I've yet to come across an individual, male or female, that have just used like Anavar and called it a day. Right. Like usually there's other things. And now I think we're getting in this world that's even scarier because now we have things like SARMs. We have things like peptides. We have people utilizing uh, this polypharmacy and they don't even understand what one of the compounds they're either utilizing or suggesting to other people are, let alone how these things work together. Yeah. Um, the implications of their use in individuals. Um, it's not as simple as just A plus B equals C. 
particularly not when now you're mixing in this like handful of drugs. I mean, utilizing growth hormone in higher levels in an individual that does not have a need for it is not benign. It's not going to be the same for everybody, those outcomes, just like utilizing a drug that's been not clinically tested on humans. Like there are implications for this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Victoria, do you have time for one more question? Oh, of course. I'm, cool. I'm, uh, I'm here in a blizzard. I'm literally, oh, really? we are snowed in. So I'm over here thinking good. that it's like cold in Arizona and it's like 56 degrees. <laughs> uh, yeah i uh when we started there was nothing and we're supposed to have like seven inches jeez i can't even imagine i've actually never even been to the snow personally oh um God. all on the west coast <laughs> well, i was in vancouver born and raised so yeah, michigan yeah. is like different level for me right uh, how, what so you do for cold? love is it colder or how was it oh, yeah. climate wise uh vancouver is more mild than seattle interesting so vancouver is blocked by vancouver island so like all the weather systems that come off the pacific like we get blocked Uh growing up we rarely had snow i can remember one day that school was shut down for snow and literally it was like an inch but we don't have the infrastructure to deal with snow because we don't get it like yes there's snow in the mountains but in the greater vancouver area you're at sea level um so you're not getting snow it's very mild I mean, it rarely drops below zero. Um, oh, wow. So super, super mild. Michigan can't <laughs> say heard. the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. I remember like one time it snowed in California and everybody was freaking out. And that was the only time in 30 years that it ever snowed. Yeah, oh. no, I, I just recently actually feel comfortable now driving in the snow after yeah. living here for four or five years oh yeah i couldn't even imagine like yeah. even and worry about ice and stuff like that too got my first pair of snow pants this year <laughs> <laughs> you're definitely to it i'm trying my best um so so one thing um i know this is probably going to skip over a lot of stuff but mm-hmm. i also know that a lot of people do tend to skip over a lot of these first steps right uh, before jumping into something like using androgens or performance enhancing substances mm-hmm. um so you mentioned anavar earlier um that's obviously like the very common drug of choice for females or coaches who are prescribing performance enhancing substances for females um and you also mentioned something about coming on and off if that is something that is possible like to be able to come off and restore uh, function um one is anavar a great choice for first exposure or or um, continuous exposure and two would we consider something like a replacement therapy like in male competitors um, like for myself I went on replacement at some point because I realized that uh, with the competitive need and how much androgens I was exposing with myself and the frequency that it was likely that one I would probably benefit from not coming off and two the likelihood of restoring HPTA function uh, was wasn't super likely um, with the amount of years that I've been exposed. Um, so yeah, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So risk has to be applied for the individual. I, I think it's really important for women and male coaches to understand that how an individual responds to Anavar is going to be greatly different. 
And so I don't feel comfortable saying like, yeah, Anavars, you know, they give it to babies. It's great. I, I don't feel comfortable saying that because it comes down to for whom? Who are we giving it to? Is this person on the pill? Is this person uh, already have her, her, you know, no alpha tormental cycle and has not had one for a very long time? Um, does this person want to conceive in the next six months to two years? Right. Um, because I, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I, I cannot foresee even at a dose of five milligrams, how right. somebody's going to respond to it. Uh, furthermore, I don't know where they're getting their thing, their, their stuff from. I don't know purity. So I can't, I can't say for sure. Um, what I can say is that on the kind of under the umbrella, under the hood of anabolic androgenic steroids is Anavar potentially going to be less adverse when used at low doses for short periods of time, less dangerous than say EQ or Masteron or even testosterone. Well, where the research has been in terms of like androgenic to anabolic impact would suggest that yes, Anavar may be less, have less implications for androgenic outcomes. And when we're talking about some of the more um, adverse issues in women, they are associated to the androgenic outcomes. Um, you know, when we talk about androgenic alopecia, which is when women start to lose their hair, particularly in um, just at the hairline, uh, androgenic acne, uh, alterations to actual um, receptor, uh, not even receptors, it's, it's the, the enzymes at the skin that will promote hair growth. Um, so there is potentially going to be a different risk ratio for something like Anavar than some of the other drugs out there. Um, so, you know, that would be my most like diluted kind of answer. But if you, if I can expand on it, it would be that Anavar can still shut down the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axes in a woman. Um, the longer you are on it, the more likely you're going to have that shut down. Um, moreover, if you have not had a robust or resilient um, ovarian hormone production and just overall kind of capacity in your body uh, to create and have these proper signals sent, then yes, going on it can have more implications than if you were in a good place to begin with. Um, so number one. Number two would be that if you already have some type of um, propensity for uh, high levels of androgen binding or high levels of 5-alpha reductase, um, then even Anavar can have implications. Um, and, and that you may have more likelihood for particular outcomes like hair growth or even um, not be able to see as positive changes with your body composition when you're on it. Um, and so again, another piece of that kind of thing for me, if we want to talk about how can we manage and mitigate risks in female competitors, one, we get healthy we stay healthy and we do everything we can to maintain that 
before we start a prep or before we start an androgen cycle, during, and then after. You cannot be on these things forever without having proper support systems in place. Males who run, let's say TRT, they are using testosterone, which is bioidentical to what they have in their bodies. And that even then there are so many different elements to that. Um, as women, we still are learning, like, is testosterone a suitable replacement for both androgens in the female body and then also estrogens? It depends on who. Right. I know that's a really popular thing right now, getting yeah, promoted. Yeah. And to me, it's terrifying. In theory, great. In practice, not so much. Um, because of just those alterations, those nuances. For women, you can still have you know some type of ovarian function happening, even if you're not ovulating, even if you're not bleeding, even if you perceive that you're shut down. There are still things happening in there, um, you know, like your endometrium buildup. Uh, if you're tonically running, let's say testosterone at a at a five milligrams per week, and you're aromatizing at a pretty hefty amount, but you're keeping it at that level all the time, you're not getting the drop that's going to signal your endometrium to schlaf, and as a result, you're going to get endometrial buildup. Your risks of endometrial cancer and cervical cancer go up through the roof. As a result, your risk of breast cancer goes up through the roof as a result, because the, the, if we look at just that, that what is the female menstrual cycle doing? It's a cycle. It's cyclical. It's, there is purosity to it, meaning that we have these highs and these lows. And if you just go highs all the time in a woman, particularly in a level that is going to be kind of at that middle to upper range for estradiol, there's, there's going to be problems for that because you're not taking breaks. You're not getting that highs and the lows. I mean, it's just like, if you're using HRT estradiol or progesterone, there are different ways that you, that you, you can apply it to women. Um, you know, if we talk, talk about like perimenopause and into menopause, I wouldn't give a woman in perimenopause or recommend uh, even for the clinicians I work with, utilizing an estradiol therapy. Why? Because perimenopause is a time of chaotic estradiol levels. Right. So we don't know if you're going to be high one month and then low the next. So why would we double, double decker you when we know we're under that circumstance? Right. Um, you know, there's, there's those nuances. There's different ways you can provide somebody with estradiol therapy that's safer, with progesterone therapy that's safer. Um, and as a result, also testosterone therapy that's safer. For me personally, it's get yourself healthy. For a woman, if you aren't ovulating, find out why. If you are, maintain it for as long as you can. It is totally normal to not ovulate every single cycle. It's totally normal to not ovulate when you're in uh, a period of high psychological, emotional, and physiological stress. And obviously that's going to look different for everybody. Where we have to make you know, certain decisions for an individual is how long have you been under this? Are you in a prep and you've lost your, like you've lost your ovulatory capacity right away and you've got three months? Well, then maybe something like a cyclical bioidentical oral progesterone would be a great option um, because you're probably not going to ovulate under those circumstances. With that said, 
you still might. We don't know because there's no predictability. It's this, you know, I use chaos theory in my research because that's the best theory I can apply to it. Um, and, and, you know, then we can have that same conversation about androgens. Sure. If somebody's androgens are low, like as, a, as a female, if her androgens are low, should you provide some type of androgen replacement? Well, why? Why are they low in the first place? Are they low chronically or is this a one-off? Right. Find out why and then address your how. Can you address this through lifestyle factors? Can you address this through, you know, basic um, interventions such as like, if there's micronutrients that are deficient or if there is high levels of psychological stress, you know, seeing a therapist, might that be beneficial? Um, it's not just about body fat. So go away with that one. It's a total fucking fallacy. Um, and I have data that can support that. Essentially, again, going back into history, if you look at it, they talked more about body fat. They talked about the high degrees of psychological stress that athletes go through until, guess what? The 1960s when contraceptives got introduced. Yeah. They stopped caring about ovulation at that point in time. And as soon as they stopped caring about ovulation, they also started overemphasizing body composition. Um, because there were certain researchers that you know were the powers that be, and they just pushed certain results out there. And that is the disgusting cycle of research that I'm a part of, but I recognize it. You know, every research has context to it. Um, as a, as a female, things that you can do and the things that I recommend, whether you're natural or not, or competitor or not, track your menstrual cycle. And not just like, am I bleeding? Ovulatory cycles need to have basal temperature. And be very careful with using like um, P ovulatory um, strips because it's essentially checking LH levels. Women like myself have tonically high LH. I flagged positive on them 24 seven for the last 15 years of my life. Does that mean I'm ovulating? No, it doesn't. I don't. Right. So be, yeah, this is where like understanding some of the science is so important because it allows us then to give the best method for the person, but basal metabolic temperature. So your temperature rises when progesterone is produced. Um, and that, then you can actually see like, am I making enough of it? What is my, what is my own baseline? Because everybody's baseline is different. Um, am I making it uh, for enough time? Is it you know, the shortened luteal phase? Um, can I get my labs done now mid luteal to actually see how much progesterone am I producing? Am I producing enough estradiol? Um, it, what's that ratio like? So labs, uh, pardon me, not labs, tracking, super, super, super important. I think it's one of the best tools that we can have for athletes to not only help them with their understanding of their own bodies, uh, but also how we can ensure that things we, we can manage the best of our abilities. You know, if you're really well-versed in this, like I work with individuals that I can tell when we're potentially going to start to run into issues based off of changing of symptoms uh, or characteristics, whether it be breast changes or um, discharge or uh, um, not seeing the same types of patterns that we did at baseline. Um, so tracking for me, super, 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 super important. Um, and then it also allows you to do safer androgen use if that's the, the road you're going to go down because you can track for certain types of androgenic outcomes like hair growth or voice changes. You know, I've, I've recommended this since from day one, uh, track your voice because you can, you might not hear it daily, 
But if you track it, you can slowly start to get on top of these things when it does happen. Um, you know, going back to your question about Anavar, Anavar, it's we're talking about a very short acting drug. So if things go sour, you can pull it right away. Right. You know, people say like, well, why not Primo? Oh, Primo takes a while to build up in your body. It's too late. By the time you get that outward sign, because what we're talking here is outward signs. There is so much more happening underneath the surface. And it has been for, you know, before you saw those outward signs. And so often it's too late. If you stop Primo, it's not like things are just going to magically disappear for everybody. For some people, it's too late because it's taken a while for that buildup to happen. So if we're talking about like just choice of drugs, like that's where, yes, Anavar could be a potentially good tool to have for somebody who is a first-time user or trying to work around risk. I do not recommend SARMs. I am adamantly opposed to it. There's a an article I wrote on my my blog years ago. It, it was in a couple magazines. I mean, I can link it if you share the link with you if you want. But essentially, mm-hmm. all you need to know is that they're drugs that got clinical trials not properly finished because of the rogueness of what they did inside the body. Uh, very simplistic way to approach it, but you know, right. for our purposes, they the a lot of the trials did not get continued. Those that did there was a really big issue with them because of the actual fundamental principle behind what they wanted for a SARM. They wanted an oral androgen that was not hepatoxic that could be taken once to twice a day and not have any issues for liver health and have selective binding. Like that is the unicorn of drugs. Yeah. Like that, that in physiology does not exist for a reason. (laughs) So what they wanted to do, it just, I mean, there's a reason why they can't make it happen. Yeah. It's because it's a, it's a unicorn. So um, I, I don't recommend that. With peptides, I mean, I don't think people are talking enough about the implications of IGF-1 use or even growth hormone use. You know, you are making everything grow, um, including potential tumors under there that you don't might not know about or cell, certain cellular turnover that might result in a certain potential disease outcome faster because you are kicking things up or for IGF one levels in women, there's also associations with things like metabolic issues. Um, And so you've got to understand those nuances and apply them to that individual, Um, you know, insulin outcomes for growth hormone are big. And if you're an individual that already has, let's say high levels of androgens, whether um, endogenously or exogenously, you're putting accelerant on this, like this, this cycle of just dysfunction where you're become very high or um, let's just say maladaptive to insulin responses properly. And then you're also becoming more inflamed as a result. Now you're also potentially changing and altering the binding of androgens. So it just, it, it, it can get really ugly if we don't actually know what we're doing. Um, so know what you're doing. I, I said it a couple of years ago to talk, date your drugs, do your research, do your vetting. Reddit is not an appropriate source. Please do not go to Reddit. Please, please, please do not go to Reddit. Um, there are resources out there. There are really good educational outputs and, and channels out there. There are also people that are putting information out there that think or pronounce themselves to be experts. And they're simply not. 
Um, so you do have to be careful. No different though, I think in the medical community as well, where the same thing can happen. Um, but do your due diligence. You only have one life. Right. Yeah, most definitely. And that's why I try to do things like this podcast and, and promote people like yourself because um, you need, I, I'm very big on the fact that you have to be an educated consumer and you need to have some basal understanding of this mm-hmm. to be able to select who's going to become your coach, who's going to help you with these things, um, you know, or where you consume I've, your information from. Right? Yeah. I said that from day one, actually, I, you know, I think there was a podcast I did years ago. That was my whole thing about being a conscious consumer. Right. You've got to be a conscious consumer of all the things, whether it's like where you're getting your, your resources from, where you're getting your drugs from, how you're understanding your own body. I mean, even just talking about how are we understanding our own biofeedback? Um, that is not a great tool if you have body dissatisfaction or if you have trauma. Uh, you know, I could go on for days talking about individuals and different clinicians I've worked with that they, people that disassociate because of trauma, you can't give them certain surveys asking them how they're right. you know sleeping or eating or certain symptoms because they've disassociated right. um like so there's just there's so much there's so much good that the fitness industry can do but we're not there yet no. but i think that i see a shift and i see more practitioners every day and it, it gives me hope for sure I have to have hope or else I yeah. think I would be sitting here because right. um, cool. I've seen the shift. Yeah. I've seen the shift. I've, you know, I, I was pre DLB. I yeah. was when women would not, you know, lift weights, let alone use androgens. And right. now thanks to the whole Instagram vessel, it's, I'm seeing cases come across my desk yeah. that I didn't think for a million years I would ever see. Yeah. And it's terrifying for me. It is motivating for me to get done my work so I can do more outreach. Like that is the fire that gets me up every day to be like, get the dissertation done. Um, Just so that I can start, you know, doing more outreach like this to help some of the shit storm out there. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, No, I think you're doing great work. And um, on that note, I I just wanted to thank you for coming on. Um, Thank you. Do you have, uh, I know you have a website. Do you have any uh, resources or services that you offer? Yes. (laughs) I hesitantly say that. So um, right now my life is a little chaotic with writing, but it won't be like this forever. Um, So I'm definitely working at a reduced capacity at the moment um, for consulting. So I work one-on-one with individuals. I also work with practitioners. So I work with um, different clinicians to provide education on this information because you don't get it. Um, And so, yes, I do provide services like that. And in the future, I will be doing a lot more. I mean, I've you have a, a business person that I've talked to and we've, you know, brainstormed about different things like uh, coach huddles where, for example, you could come with a group of 10 other coaches and literally just, you know, provide me cases. And I go through one case a week and you get to be the fly on the wall, whether it's your case or somebody else's and yeah. just listen to how I would actually tackle that. 
Yeah. Um, what are my recommendations? What are the things I would, you know, suggest you talk to them about or inquire about or look at their labs or so on and so forth. So um, that is all in, that is all going to come. My website does have a massive resource of podcasts. I, I try to post every podcast I've ever been on, on my website. I think I've got most of them up there. Um, I've also been uh, a, absolutely privileged to speak at the Swiss Symposium for three years now. Um, and so that those talks are actually on the Swiss portal. Highly recommend anybody, everybody access those, not my talks, but just the Swiss portal and my talks if you want, but there's just such an amazing wealth of like 25 years of the leaders in our industry across all domains from, you know, power lifters to chiros to physical therapists to nutritionists to physical, like just everybody like it's awesome. So check that out. Um, I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but next weekend I actually am doing an event. Um, and I'm going to be talking about female health for athletes, what you need to know before, during, and after prep. And that is going to be able to be live streamed. Um, and my husband is actually going to be talking on female and PEDs. So we make quite the team. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's about resources for now. I mean, social media, I am terrible at it. I need to help. If anybody's a social media manager out there and wants to help me out. Help me. Yeah, likewise. D- DM me because right. I need all the help I can get. <laughs> um, and, but that is definitely going to be more in the future when I'm done writing. That's awesome. I'm uh, super excited for that. And I think even with the the all the podcasts you've done, you've done, I think if people went back and looked through those, they'd be able to learn a lot and be, hopefully become more of an educated consumer. So uh, thank you so much for coming on, Victoria. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. Hey, I just wanted to thank you for making it through the podcast. Victoria's links are in the description below. And if you're ever interested in coaching, please feel free to book a consult following my link in the description. And I just wanted to take a moment to thank all of you so much for your support.